Uh, please open your Bibles to Isaiah 29. Once again, that's Isaiah chapter 29. Uh, for the past several months, we've been uh, studying the confrontation that occurred between Jesus and the religious leaders uh, in the temple on the Tuesday of Passion Week, which is recorded uh, in the second half of Matthew 21 through Matthew 23. Um, Matthew 21, of course, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday. He cleanses the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, he comes back, and he's immediately confronted by the religious leaders who challenge his authority. A religious debate breaks out, and in the ensuing exchange, Jesus exposes the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders before going on to publicly condemn them for their sin. This condemnation of their hard-heartedness is where we've been camped out for the past couple months as we've tried to understand the causes and the motivations for the religious leader's rejection of the Christ. Uh, We certainly don't want to repeat their error, and so we've been trying to learn from their example of what not to do as Jesus issues this scathing rebuke against them. We finished our study of of that passage last week. Right at the end of this exchange, Jesus issues this whole series of woes where he explains the judgment that he's going to render uh, on on Israel. In the last woe, Jesus declares that all the judgment that those who, who killed the prophets deserve are going to fall on them, on this generation that is rejecting him. Immediately after this woe, he also follows up this powerful, with this powerful lamentation as he considers the wrath to come. And then that's it. Jesus walks away. And those are the last words that He declares to Israel publicly before His death. Wednesday is going to come around and Jesus isn't going to go out and say anything. There's nothing left to talk about. The verdict has been decreed. The sentence proclaimed. Israel is guilty. Jesus has declared the coming wrath of God in this furious cascade of woes. And now silence. Silence. There's nothing else to say. Negotiations for peace are over. Now it's just a matter of waiting. Waiting for Israel to fulfill its sinful desires. Waiting for God to punish them with great wrath for their stubborn rebellion. Now normally we'd move on to this next, the next passage in Matthew, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. But before we do that, I want to spend one more week reflecting on what Jesus has said In Matthew 23. And I want to do that from Isaiah 29 verses 13 to 16. A part of the reason for this pause is is practical. I want to give you a heads up about that. Uh, I'm going to be out of town next week. And then the week after that is Christmas. Uh, Basically this means that we'd start the Olivet Discourse this week. Uh, If we were to move on to the next passage. We'd start the Olivet Discourse this week. Only to set it down for two weeks before picking it back up again. And I'd rather not do that. I'd prefer to keep the flow of the discourse going once we start it. Uh, so that's one reason why we're taking a break. We'll pick up on the Olivet Discourse again on the week after Christmas and then just run with it, hopefully without interruption. However, that being said, I also think uh, that when you walk through these woe statements that Jesus has just delivered, and, and when you consider the gravity with which Jesus is treating the religious leader's sin, It should grab your attention and make you go back and reflect again on the kinds of sins Jesus is condemning with a kind of fearful sobriety. I mean, Jesus has just told the religious leaders that because of their sin, all the wrath of God that belongs to those who killed the prophets is going to come down on them. That should make you sit up in your chair and and ask yourself, so, so what did Jesus say again? What, what, what was that that he was so angry about? What was he condemning again? I mean, obviously, Jesus means business, right? When it comes to the religious leader's sins, which means that you should be fleeing from those sins at all costs. And this is where Isaiah 29 comes in handy. The type of sin that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23 is not unique to Israel's history. Again, the reason why the sins of the scribes and Pharisees' fathers are going to come down on them is because they're basically repeating the sins that their fathers performed throughout Israel's history. There's this one continuous line of sin that stretches back from these religious leaders all the way back to the very beginnings of Israel's foundations. So we can expect that the issues that Jesus addressed in Matthew 23 are also addressed by the prophets of previous generations in the Scripture. And that's what we find in Isaiah 29. Just so you know, legend has it that King Manasseh had Isaiah sawn in two for the messages he proclaimed to Israel. Messages like the one that we find here in Isaiah 29. 
Right? Jesus talks about how they killed the prophets that came before. Isaiah, it would appear, is one of those prophets. Well, the scribes and Pharisees' crime, you will recall, the one that led to all these previous problems that Jesus condemned them for, the root issue of their sin was their hypocrisy. That's the refrain that Jesus repeats throughout these woe statements of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here in Isaiah 29, Isaiah, who would eventually be martyred, it would seem, he confronts the exact same issue in the religious and political leaders of his day. And he explains how God responds to this kind of worship, how he responds to hypocritical worship. So as this stunning declaration from Jesus against hypocrisy continues to, to reverberate in the public silence that follows, I think it's appropriate to take a moment to continue to reflect on this idea by going back and seeing what Isaiah had to say to Israel about this same sin several hundred years before. Once again, the passage is Isaiah 29, 13-16. And in this passage, Isaiah explains how God responds to hypocritical worship. How does God respond to hypocritical worship? It says this, Isaiah 29, 13-16. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding? There are two different consequences to hypocritical worship spelled out in this verse. And the first is this. Number one, judgment. Judgment. Hypocritical worship invites God's judgment. We see this in verses 13 to 14. Isaiah says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The passage begins with God's indictment of the nation for their sin. What is the official charge against Judah? It is hypocritical worship. God condemns them for their hypocritical worship. The nation demonstrates external worship. They draw near to God with their words. They honor Him with their lips. But internally, internally, they do not worship. Their hearts are far removed from God. Their reverence is nothing more than mere tradition. The verse says that Judah's hearts are far from God. In fact, the verb for this removal is emphatic. It stresses the complete removal of the hearts of Judah from God. In other words, it's not like they have just begun to remove their hearts or that their hearts are just a little removed from God. No, they've left town. They're nowhere to be found. They're completely gone. It's somewhat significant that God utters these words during the reign of King Hezekiah. That's when these words were written. It was during the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was preceded by King Ahaz. Ahaz's reign was a low point in Judah's history uh, spiritually. It was a low point in Judah's spiral into idolatry. Not only did Ahaz cry out to the Assyrians for help when Israel and Syria allied to wage war against the nation of Judah, even paying Assyria with silver and gold taken from the temple. But after Assyria defeated Israel and Syria, Ahaz journeyed to Damascus, and upon seeing the pagan altar that was there, he gave orders for a similar altar to be constructed and placed into the temple in Jerusalem. In short, the worship of Yahweh was generally neglected during the time of Ahaz. But when these words are written, it's written under King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, his reign, uh, under his reign, there were tremendous reforms. Hezekiah repaired the temple. He restored the priests to their proper place in Judah. He renewed the nation's covenant with Yahweh. And in general, he returned the nation to the worship of Yahweh instead of idols, or so Hezekiah thought. God says that actually the nation is going through the motions of worship, but it's not genuine. Their worship is only tradition learned by rote. Their worship, what they've been told to worship. 
When we read these words in verses 13 to 14, it's easy to begin to jump to conclusions and think we understand what Isaiah is talking about here and move on. We tend to think that the hypocritical worship God is condemning is related to Israel's delight or their joy in God. It's claiming to have a love for God when that love isn't really there. This view would be reinforced by the fact that Isaiah uses the word hearts in the context here, which we tend to associate with love in our culture. But this isn't what God is referring to here. It's not exactly their love for Him that God is rebuking, at least not in the sense of delight. There's a very specific situation facing Judah when Isaiah writes these words, and this situation gives us a more nuanced view of what's being said in this verse. When Isaiah writes these words, the nation of Judah is coming under attack by the most fearsome superpower on the earth at that time, which is the empire of Assyria. Assyria, is, by the way, is not your run-of-the-mill ancient Near Eastern conqueror either. These guys were a special kind of nasty. They relied heavily on psychological warfare in order to maintain their dominance over such a broad region of the, the Middle East. They would bully and intimidate people to obey them. And so the way they do this is that when they conquered you, they wouldn't just conquer you, they'd terrorize you. Records exist of them flaying their conquered foes and leaving them some of them uh, some of the skinned bodies on stakes while impaling others to be viewed by anyone who would pass by as a warning about what, what would happen to anyone who opposed them. They wouldn't just conquer a city. They would also decapitate the conquered. And then they would pile up heads outside the city gates. And then they would burn adolescent children in the city as a reminder of what happens to you when you cross Assyria. That sounds more than a bit grisly, doesn't it? Well, Hezekiah Hezekiah had angered this nation a few years earlier by refusing to pay the tribute they demanded from him and by even taking a few of their territories from them. And now, after Assyria has had some time to regroup from a string of other rebellions against them, they're coming for Judah. They're coming for Judah. Keep in mind, they're coming for Judah fresh off of victories over bigger and better enemies than Judah. I mean, they beat guys like Babylon before they came to Judah. Put yourself in the shoes of a father or a mother in Judah at this time. Imagine the fear you would have as you hear reports that the Assyrians are destroying city after city in the Palestinian countryside on the way to your home outside Jerusalem. Keep in mind, this wasn't a distant story written down in a book about something that happened a couple of thousand years ago for these people. This was reality. The Assyrians were on their doorstep. There was nothing that they would be able to do to stop them. I mean, imagine if ISIS were here in the U.S. and they're coming for you and you can't stop them. That's what it would have been like for these people with the Assyrians. I mean, this is a time to panic. If ever there was one. What does a person do in a time like this? I'll tell you what Hezekiah and the leaders of Judah did. They got to work. They sailed the Gahon Spring outside the city and they built a conduit channeling the water into the Pool of Siloam inside the city walls so they would have water during, during the impending siege. They knew a siege was coming, so they got prepared. They fortified the city walls. They built weapons. Military commanders were appointed. And of course, these are all pretty reasonable actions. You shouldn't lie down dead and just wait for the Assyrians to come and kill you. You should get ready and, and give them a fight. But unfortunately, this wasn't the only thing they did. They also sought help from the Egyptians. This whole section of Isaiah, chapters 28 to 35, is about this very issue. It's about the the possible alliance that Judah is seeking with Egypt at this time. God is against this alliance with Egypt. He tells Judah, don't do it. In our verses, God explains that when Judah seeks this alliance, it's actually indicative of hypocritical worship. He says that Judah honors, God says that Judah honors him with, his, with their lips. The word for honor there is the verb form of the Hebrew word kabod, which is typically translated as glory. They glorify me with their lips, which would be another way to translate this verse. The word kabod can also mean weighty. Thus, to honor something in this sense, to give it glory, is to treat it as something that is weighty or significant. With their words... The people of Judah treat God as if He is weighty, as if He is of significance. 
And yet their reverence consists of tradition. Their fear of me, God says, is a commandment taught by men. They say that God is awesome and that He's a fearful God, a powerful God, but their actions betray them. That's not what they really believe. Do you understand it is not Judah's love or delight that's false here? It's their trust, their faith. Judah does not really think that God is strong enough. They do not think that He is capable of defending them from the Assyrians. The God they claim to serve is the one they claim is capable of overcoming any foe. He is awesome and mighty and powerful. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God who struck the Egyptians with the ten plagues and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots in the Red Sea. This is the God that surrounded Sinai with fire and smoke as He delivered the people from Egypt with an outstretched arm. This is a God so mighty in His strength that you tremble before Him. You fear Him because His power means He is kabod. He is weighty. He is glorious. But when Judah seeks someone to intervene for them, to defend them from Assyria, they turn to a pagan nation that trusted in false gods for their strength and protection, for their deliverance. Get this. Israel turns to the very nation that God used in the history of Israel to demonstrably prove that, in fact, there were no other gods but one, and His name is Yahweh. This is the nation that God single-handedly vanquished with a display of power unmatched in history, and Judah is turning to them and saying, will you save us from the Assyrians? You see what's going on here? The significance of this move is subtle, but it's important. When Israel seeks help from Egypt, they're very quietly making a resounding statement which is God cannot deliver us. He needs help. So with their lips, they praise the awesome power of God, but when their backs are up against the wall, they don't really believe that. And how do we know that? We know that because they don't turn to Him for help. Don't get me wrong, it says in 2 Chronicles 32 that as the people prepared for the invasion of Assyria, Hezekiah gathered Judah together and he implored them, quote, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And it says that the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. But that's just the point, isn't it? They're claiming... To, to believe in the power of God with their words, but their actions say otherwise. It wasn't supposed to work this way in Israel. It wasn't supposed to be that Israel, Yahweh, and other nations defended Israel. No, Israel was a nation chosen to demonstrate to all the other nations the matchless power of Yahweh. The point was that the odds were supposed to be stacked against Israel. That was how God would demonstrate His power. God didn't demonstrate that He alone was God by redeeming a powerful people. He didn't redeem a military powerhouse like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. He didn't choose to redeem a great nation. No, He chose to raise up a nation from a single, faithful, but insignificant man. God didn't choose to redeem a a powerful nation. No, He sent His people into slavery, actually. He redeemed a nation of slaves. And do you know why He did all of this? It's because God didn't want there to be any room for Israel or for any other nation to say that His nation was successful because they were the most numerous or the most rich or the, or the, or the most powerful. He didn't want them to find it in the people of Israel. There wasn't to be any room to explain away His nation's success as a product of human effort. There wasn't to be any room to explain His nation's success but to say God did it. God wanted the odds stacked against his nation, so that he could demonstrate his power to all the other nations on the earth as he delivered Israel with an outstretched arm. I mean, Israel didn't need the help of foreign gods to conquer the Canaanites, right? Because they had a God who caused the walls of Jericho to fall. Their God could stop the sun in the sky and hurl rocks from the heavens to give them the promised land. And yet here Judah thinks that their own military strength or the strength of pagan Egypt is their deliverance, not God. It's as if my son were to say to me, Dad, I think you're the strongest dad in the whole world. I'm so glad that you're my dad, but, but and, and no one is stronger than you are. 
It's as, if, it's as if he were to say that to me, but then when something is shut up tight and he thinks it can be open, he can't be opened, even though I'm standing right there next to him, he goes and he asks my wife to open it instead of me. He says that he thinks I'm strong, but he doesn't act like it. When the time comes to rely on my strength, he doesn't do it. That's what's happening here in Isaiah 29. Listen, we all sing a mighty fortress is our God, but do you live it? Do you breathe it? When your back is up against the wall, where do you go? When you're faced with a difficult decision, do you rely on the counsel of others? Do you rely on your own wisdom or do you rely on God's word? Really think about the answer to that question. When you're busy, do you find yourself leaning all the more on God for strength or do you find yourself cutting corners in your relationship with God for expediency's sake? It's reported that Martin Luther once said, Tomorrow I plan to work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Is this the attitude you have before God? When the going gets tough, do you lean on God more or do you find yourself relying more and more in your own strength? Or maybe do you do all these things, you you check all the boxes and meet all the requirements of what trusting God should look like, but inside you're dying with anxiety. If any of these things are true of you, then I would wager that though you are drawing near to God with your lips, the reality is that your heart is far from Him. And this is an incredibly dangerous place to be, as we start to see in the next verse, verse 14. Verse 14 begins with, Therefore, behold... Behold, because of verse 13, therefore, verse 14, this is cause and effect. Because of what Israel did in verse 13, God is going to respond in a certain way in verse 14. The move from 13 to 14 is the move from indictment to verdict, from transgression to judgment. And God says, behold. He says, listen up. I want you to to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say next. The statement that follows is supposed to ring loudly and clearly. God says, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. The verb form for do wonderful things is meant to emphasize the doer of the action. God is responding. He's saying, Judah has acted this way. They have strayed far from me, according to verse 13. But in verse 14, God says, now I act. Now it's my turn. You also have the root word for wonder occurring three times in this statement. A more literal way of stating it would be, I will again wondrously deal with this people in a wondrously wonderful way. Or I will again marvelously deal with this people in a marvelously marvelous way. God is going to an extreme here. He's saying that He's going to put on a show. He's going to act in the biggest way that He can. God is essentially saying here, so this people, they don't think I'm really that powerful, that I'm going to show them the full extent of my power. How does he display this power? How does he deal wondrously with this people? He takes away the wisdom of their wise men and the discernment of their discerning men. The wisdom of the wise will perish. Another way of stating it would be that it will come to ruin, it will become lost. The idea is that it will be undone, it will disappear The discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. It will be concealed. God's going to cover it up. Now you really have to understand the larger context of these statements in order to grasp the significance of what God's saying here. In verses 1-4 to of this chapter, God foretells the disaster that is to come on Israel for the Assyrian siege. The Assyrians would indeed besiege Jerusalem, he says. In verses 5-8 to of this chapter, God foretells of the deliverance that He's going to bring. He's going to rescue Judah from the hands of the Assyrians. Then in verses 9 to 12, God says this, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all of this, referring to what he's just said, has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one uh, who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. God says, you're not going to understand any of what I've just told you. Because I'm going to shut the eyes of your spiritual leaders. This is the judgment that I have predicted will come upon you, and you will not repent. 
Finally, in verses 17 to 19, God says this. He says, uh, It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall attain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of, the Israel, of Israel. Uh, continue through verse 21. It says, For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Essentially, God says, uh, first He says, I'm going to discipline you, I'm going to shut up uh, this prophecy so you can't see or understand. And then He says, and then when I'm done disciplining you, Judah, for ignoring my power, then I will open your eyes to understand what I've done. And you'll be blessed again. God says to Judah, you think you know better than me. You think that you're wiser than me. You don't think I'm in control, but let me show you just how much I am in control. I'm going to predict the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what will happen from the beginning to to end, quite plainly, because I'm in control of all of it. But then I'm going to shut up your eyes so you can't see it. I'm going to shut your ears so you can't hear it. I'm going to confuse your mind so you cannot understand it, not until it's all over. And then when everything is said and done, I'm going to open your eyes and you'll see the mighty power of my work, that it is I who controls all things, that it is I who delivers you. And And that I also see everything. In fact, you're going to understand that I even see right down to your sinful heart. I see your false worship. What you're seeing here is a tremendous display of judgment. Israel thinks that God is not strong enough to deliver them. Therefore, God will rebuke their rebellious hearts in a magnificent display of His strength. He rebukes Israel both in the sovereign discipline that He brings through Assyria and in the sovereign blinding of Judah so that they will receive the full measure of their discipline before they repent. We see many different consequences for wrong worship throughout the Scripture. Nadab and Abihu were killed for presenting an offering of strange fire before the Lord. Saul was rejected as king for offering sacrifices um, that were to be offered by Samuel. Uzzah was killed instantly for touching the ark when he was not of the proper family to carry the ark. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy for attempting to offer incense in God's temple when that was reserved for the priest alone to perform. Hypocritical worship, likewise, can lead to a much more serious consequence than these other kinds of false worship. Hypocritical worship can lead to spiritual blindness. This consequence disrupts a person's very relationship with God. Of course, there's a very practical aspect of this kind of blindness. On one hand, as you fail to recognize the true power of God, you simply begin to drift. You drift away from God on your own accord. You see, because you fail to tremble before God, because you fail to see His weightiness, because you fail to realize the strength with which He guides and protects you, you simply drift away. You stop paying attention. You don't value His power, so you don't go to Him in prayer. So you don't get to see or experience His answers to prayer in such a way that you even draw nearer to Him. You don't value His wisdom, so you don't seek His wisdom through His Word. So over time, you're simply void of His wisdom by neglect. As such, you don't get to experience the benefits of His wisdom in such a way that you draw even nearer to Him. Your own lack of respect for God causes you to fall into this downward spiral of unrepentance to the point that you eventually become empty of any real, vital knowledge about Him. You've caused yourself to become spiritually blind through neglect. And yet there's a supernatural aspect of this blindness as well. Paul explains how this works in Romans 1. It's precisely because men did not honor God as God or give Him thanks, but rather chose to become futile in their speculation that God did what? It says that He gave them over to a depraved mind. This is why Paul actually quotes this verse, this very verse, Isaiah 29, 13-16, in 1 Corinthians 1.19. The Corinthians are bickering over who is the greatest in their church. And Paul's, Paul responds by saying, did you forget how you were saved? He says, you weren't saved because you were great, but because God is. Don't you remember that it is, it is a supernatural work of God in you? And God did this so that He would get all the glory? Here's the ironic part about all of this, this drift away. When our back is up, against the wall, through some obstacle 
that we're facing in life. We can be very tempted to shortcut our relationship with God when in fact it's in those times that our greatest need is God. We say to ourselves, I don't have time to pray today. I can't be bothered to check into His Word for wisdom. I need answers now. And we think that when we do this, we're being smart. We think that we're being wise. We may even call ourselves efficient for trying to accomplish so many tasks at once. In reality, we're being incredibly stupid. We're being incredibly foolish. Because when we abandon God, we abandon the very source of our sufficiency and strength. As the wisest man who ever lived and the most powerful king in Israel's history, King Solomon, wrote, Psalm 127, he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You want advice from the wisest man who ever lived about how to work efficiently and how to reap the greatest rewards from your labors? This is it. You trust God. He says you can't do anything without the grace of God because God controls everything. So trust God. You can break your back for money and financial security and have nothing while others who hardly even try, it seems like money practically falls into their laps. And do you know why? It's because these things are from God. You can't control them. God builds the house. He watches over the city. Now, this isn't an argument for neglect. This isn't to say you shouldn't work, for, work hard for things that you think are pleasing to God. Rather, this is merely to say that you should never focus on your efforts and labors to the neglect of God, because in the end, it's all up to Him. He determines the result. And while I can't stand up here and say that He's going to automatically bless you whenever you set your hand, uh, whatever you set your hand to when you turn to Him like He's some kind of genie, at the same time, I can say with relative certainty that when you neglect Him, You can rest assured that if you are a child of God, He will frustrate your efforts. It is unacceptable in His eyes for His children to think that they are sufficient on their own. It is unacceptable for them to think that they are ever independent of His power and grace. And so He will discipline you. Just as He disciplined Israel in this passage. He will judge you. Just as He judged Israel. Like Israel, we can begin to think that we are being wise, we're being strategic when we begin to focus on our own labors to the degree that we forget God. In reality, we're being incredibly foolish because we're abandoning the very source of our sufficiency. We're offering God hypocritical worship, claiming that He is great while living out a different, set of, a different standard in our choices. And as we do this, we invite the judgment of God. We invite even a blinding that prevents us from turning to God again in, in repentance until God discipline, disciplines us and has poured out all that discipline upon us. We must avoid hypocritical worship because it invites God's judgment. Now let's look at the second response to hypocritical worship. We'll spend a lot less time here because the foundation has already been laid at this point, I think. God's second response to hypocritical worship is this. Wrath. Hypocritical worship inflames God's wrath. We see this in verses 15 to 16. Isaiah says, Oh, you who hide from the Lord your counsel, hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding? The first word here in the ESV is translated ah. This is probably a little bit misleading. It's more literally woe. Woe. It's an expression of grief and distress. You might think of it as saying grief to you, distress to you. God is saying despair, you who hide your plans from me. It's an expression of warning. God is saying there is danger for you, Judah, when you do this. Turn around. Stop. And who is this warning directed at? It says, You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. The word for hide here is the same word for hidden that occurs in verse 14. These are those who think that they can obscure God's knowledge of their hearts in the same way that He will obscure Himself from Judah. The warning is directed at those whose deeds are done in the dark. The ones who think they can obscure God's vision make Him blind in the same way that He's going to blind Judah. It's directed at those who say, who sees us or who knows us? 
It's directed at those who think God does not take notice or understand or see what takes place in secret. And do you know who this is? It's the one who says God is his strength out of the one side of his mouth and yet pleads for help elsewhere on the other side when it's needed. It's the one who praises God with his lips but acts like God doesn't know what's going on in the heart. It's Judah when they call for Egypt. It's you when you proclaim God's might and rely on yourself. It's those who proclaim one thing in the light, one thing on the outside, one thing externally for everyone to see, but inside where it seems no one can see, they do another or think another. God says, watch out. Turn around to these people. Why does God warn these people? Where is the danger in what they're doing? Look at verse 16. He says, you turn things around. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. When someone offers the kind of hypocritical worship described here, they're actually attempting a role reversal where they take God's place. They attack God. How does that work? How are they attacking God? They do it in a couple of ways. First, they attack God by thinking they can handle the situation better than God. And they make a claim that they have more power than God. This is the equivalent to the clay saying to the potter, He didn't make me. I don't need Him to be formed. I made myself by my own power. I'm here on my own. I can handle this myself. Second, By thinking that they can fool God by doing two separate things, one in the light and one in secret, they claim to be wiser than God. They think they can outsmart Him. This is the equivalent of what is formed, saying to the one who formed it, He has no understanding. He doesn't know what He's doing. He can't see what I'm thinking. Make no mistake, lip worship, feigned worship, it is more offensive to God than blatant outright sin. And do you know why that is? It's because the open sinner... The open sinner yet acknowledges who God is. They reject Him, they hate Him, but they're still truthful about who He is in in their open, blatant rejection of God. And He's glorified in at least that much. The blatant sinner may reject God, but they don't necessarily attempt to distort who He is. They know who He is, they accept who He is, they reject Him. But to feign worship, that makes God out to be something else entirely. That makes God out to be nothing more than another deaf blind, mute, stupid idol who doesn't see or understand. That, that God finds offensive. And He will not tolerate it, especially amongst the people He set apart for Himself. Hypocritical worship demeans God. It makes Him low and it raises us up. It tries to alter reality and in the process it attacks the character of God. It mocks God. And as it mocks God, He can only give one response and that's wrath. That is why God warns these people against hypocritical worship. It can only result in wrath. He must defend His glory. He cannot suffer His name to be dishonored because He is indeed worthy to receive honor. God sees Judah's actions and He says, This insults me. You say that I'm mighty, but you don't act like it. You act like I can't help you. That's why you're going to Egypt. And you confirm my accusation by thinking, I don't even see what's going on. I don't understand what this means. How stupid do you think I really am? There was this uh, time a number of years back when I was watching this nature show on TV. Uh, on this show, the featured animal was a sloth. The sloth was hanging out on this low-hanging tree branch, and the host was moving around the sloth, pointing out you know, various things that the sloth was doing and explaining facts about the sloth as he slothed up the tree real slowly. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of hard to say all of a sudden for a sloth, right? Uh, all of a sudden, the sloth began to very slowly cover his eyes with his hands. He just kind of did this. And the host got real excited. And he started to exclaim, Look, look, do you see that? He's attempting to defend himself. He's feeling threatened. And so now he's going into self-defense mode. And I remember thinking to myself, How is this animal still on the planet? <laughs> right? Uh, that is his self-defense mode. I, you know, if I don't see you, you can't see me. That's his best option to survive in a predator attack, right? And that's what the sloth is doing. He's kind of just like covering his eyes. And uh, how foolish of a strategy is that, right? There's, just, there's no way this animal should still be living. And yet that's what we do when we practice hypocritical worship. Hypocritical worship is the equivalent to putting your hands over your eyes and saying, I guess you can't see me now, God. Just because we cover our own hearts so that we can't see God doesn't mean that He can't still see us. 
It's insulting. It angers him. And with his anger comes judgment, just like the judgment described in verses 13 to 14. What would be the conclusion of Judah's attempted alliance with Egypt? As Isaiah predicted, Judah failed to respond to God's warnings. And they persisted in their alliance with Egypt. And again, as Isaiah predicted, it failed miserably. The Assyrians swept into the land, easily taking the Palestinian coastlands from the north to the south before turning inland and taking the city of Lachish, uh, which was situated uh, between uh, uh, on the road leading up to Jerusalem from the southwest. They essentially, uh, actually what they ended up doing was they actually cut off any potential assistance from Egypt um, and hemmed in Jerusalem so that they were absolutely unable to receive outside assistance. The Assyrians managed to even march a large army up to Jerusalem, according to 2 Kings 18.17. In other words, it came down to just Jerusalem against the largest superpower on earth. Assyrian officials called out to the Judeans from outside the city walls, reminding them how they destroyed every other nation that had opposed them and imploring them to give up the city against the wishes of Hezekiah. They even mocked the power of Yahweh declaring that he was no different than any of the other gods of the peoples they had conquered. Probably not a wise move. (laughs) In the words of Isaiah 8, the waters of the river rose up to all its channels and banks and swept on into Judah, reaching up even to the neck of Judah. If you've ever been into really deep water with a strong current and you're standing on your tiptoes, just trying to keep from being utterly swept away, that's the picture that God gives of how close Judah came to utter destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. They were up on their tiptoes as the the army was right up there at the neck. But you know what happened to them? This is what it says, 2 Chronicles 32, 20-23. It says, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. Hezekiah finally had no other choice and he turned to God and genuinely prayed for deliverance and protection. And it says in the scripture, And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders of the officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Second Kings 19.35 is more specific. There the Bible tells us that the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of the Assyrians in a single night. Second Chronicles continues, it says, So he returned, referring to the ruler of Assyria, he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. God once again demonstrated, really not only to Israel, but even to the nations around Israel, that He alone is God by redeeming Judah with an outstretched arm. And afterwards, after God had blinded Judah's eyes and accomplished all the judgment that He had declared through Isaiah in His wrath, these words were still there as an awesome testimony to the matchless power of Yahweh, reminding the nation once again that they should trust in no one but God. So you look at this passage and it gives you a very clear warning, right? Repent of your hypocrisy. Repent of your hypocrisy or else, it says. And that's exactly the sort of message that we find in Matthew 23 as well. Jesus declares, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, precisely because of the kind of judgment that God is soon to bring about on them because of their hypocrisy. So also, you must repent of your hypocrisy. God simply will not tolerate it. And most especially, He will not tolerate it of His children. He will not tolerate it, so you must repent. That's the thought that you should continue to reflect on as we leave Matthew 23 and begin the Olivet Discourse. The extreme seriousness, seriousness with which God treats religious hypocrisy. And I think what perhaps Isaiah 29 adds to this thought is a fresh perspective on what God defines as hypocrisy. I would venture to say that most of us would define hypocrisy as not doing what you say ought to be done. Do as I say, not as I do. That's what we think is hypocrisy. And I think that's definitely one type of hypocrisy. But understand that God is addressing a different kind of hypocrisy here. 
the ones being judged here are not hypocrites in that sense of the word. Again, this judgment occurred during the reign of King Hezekiah. This was, there was a type of revival going on in Israel. You could say that, at least in terms of their actions, the people sought God. They did what a person ought to do. The problem, though, is that they had a different set of thoughts and motives going on in their heart. They were hypocrites in the sense that their actions were just a performance. They proclaimed God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. In other words, they made the same mistake that the Pharisees made in thinking that they could fool God with their actions. That God couldn't see the uncleannesses of their heart. So their problem wasn't that they didn't know that they didn't do what they said. They did what they said. The problem was that, they, that, that what they did failed to reflect the true intentions of their heart. Just like the Pharisees made a mockery of God's temple by simply going through the motions of sacrifice in order to try to manipulate God, that's what this people did as they praised the power of wisdom of God while seeking help from Egypt. And God disciplined them for that kind of hypocrisy. Think about this. God is not satisfied with your performance if that performance is not a reflection of who you really are. In fact, so far from being satisfied with mere performance, God is angered by it. It inflames His wrath. You go back to Jesus' teaching on the law and you see that the kind of worship that God demands is expressed in in real, actual love for people. Like your love for Him is supposed to spill out onto others. When you choose to neglect the heart work that produces that, and and, and because let's face it, that kind of work is, is much harder and requires us to actually die to the idols that enslave us. Well, when you choose to neglect that kind of repentance and elect to go through the motions of cold religion instead, God doesn't say, well done. He doesn't say, well done. He wonders, what kind of, what kind of a fool do you take me for? He wonders, do you think I cannot see? Do you think I don't have eyes? Do you think I'm like one of those idols that the pagans carve out of stone and wood to worship? Quite frankly, it's insulting. Obedience without worship, without faith, without trust, is insulting. It offends the honor and glory of God. Listen, if there's one thing that you should understand as we draw near to the close of Matthew, it's that the kind of obedience that God demands is primarily internal. God wants your heart. Anything else is is not enough. You must turn from your idolatry in your heart and repent unto faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will not, if you refuse to attack sin there, then devastation awaits. No, you will not be cut off from relationship with God. Not if you're in Christ. That's safe. That's secure. That relationship can never be lost because Christ has paid for your sin. But God will discipline. And He will correct you until you repent at the heart because He's satisfied with nothing less. That's what passages like Isaiah 29, passages like Matthew 23 teach us. They issue a very sober warning about the consequences of religious hypocrisy. But all that being said, there's also good news. The good news is that if you do repent, then God will forgive. God is eager to forgive. What these passages show us is that while God hates hypocrisy, He's also patient and long-suffering. He doesn't discipline immediately because He would rather His children heed His warnings and repent before that's necessary. I mean, that's why He's writing Isaiah 29. It's a warning. God would rather His children repent before discipline is necessary. And then when He does discipline, He's also eager to restore. I mean, you look at this passage in Isaiah 29, and God pulls no punches in explaining the discipline that He is about to bring upon Judah for their sin. But at the same time, He's also eager to explain the restoration that He will bring about once the nation's time of correction is over. And it's a rich and it's an abundant restoration. In other words, you don't have to respond to the warning in these passages with fear. That's probably our first reaction to these warnings. We know that God hates hypocrisy at the heart. We know we're guilty of that, and so we run and hide. We try to rationalize our sin, or we try to substitute lesser forms of obedience for the more significant ones, and we try to put ourselves at ease by telling us that we're fine, that we, that we don't have to fear God, that we're okay. Listen, you may be able to fool yourself, but God is not so easily fooled. He knows the difference. And if you try to hide your sin from from Him, He's going to expose it, 
and bring you to genuine repentance, just like He did with King Hezekiah, just like He's presently doing with the nation of Israel. He'll do the same with you. So don't hide. Flee to God. Confess your sinful heart and ask Him for mercy. When you do that, God is merciful. And I hope you understand this. The point is not to hear these warnings and then try to change your behavior. Just just change that. Again, it's the Pharisees' attempts to clean the outside of the cup that anger Jesus. God wants the inside of the cup clean. And that's something you can't do on your own. You can't change your heart because those thoughts, those desires, they're just who you are. You're the source of the sin that comes out of you. You need someone outside of yourself to deliver you from that. God does that. That's the message that Jesus was trying to communicate to Israel. He's telling them, listen, you're unclean and the inside, but if you turn to me and ask, then I will give you the Holy Spirit and I will transform you from the inside. Jesus is the one who can cleanse you of your sin. And listen, when you turn to God in that way, that's the kind of thing He's looking for. God doesn't demand perfection, per se, but repentance. Don't get me wrong, yes, He demands total obedience, but He won't discipline when you fall short so long as you're coming to Him in genuine humility and repentance. And that's the problem that Isaiah was confronting. The people look to Egypt for deliverance rather than God. Likewise, the Pharisees try to manage their own unrighteousness rather than seek God's mercy. What made God angry was when people stopped seeking His help. But when you seek seek His help, that anger subsides. When you worship, really worship, really worship by placing your trust in Him, He's all too delighted to give His blessing. What you have to remember about passages like Isaiah 29, Matthew 23, what you have to remember is that God's grace to His children is still present in judgment. We saw this on display with Jesus' lament over the Pharisees in particular. He, he longed that things could have happened differently. And, and the promise even still was that once Israel's judgment was over and they repent, blessings going to return. God's grace is never absent. The discipline He brings, it's only there for a moment to bring correction. This means that when you repent, the discipline generally is going to lift, perhaps not in terms of consequences, but most definitely in terms of fellowship. Fellowship can be restored. As I once heard a pastor friend of mine say, it doesn't matter how many steps you take away from God, His grace is always one step away. His grace is always one step away. All you have to do is turn and ask. So if Isaiah 29 adds to this discussion about hypocrisy, it does it by showing us that the kind of hypocrisy that God condemns. And if you realize that you're guilty of this hypocrisy, that you say all kinds of things with your mouth about God that are not reflected in your heart, which, by the way, is revealed in your actions, if you realize that that's what you're guilty of, then where you begin is by repenting of that hypocrisy. And you do it specifically by trusting God enough to acknowledge where you fall short and ask for His mercy. Let's go ahead and close this morning by doing that together in prayer. Let's pray.